0: Hi, and welcome to the 53rd Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is the digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, showing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. In this episode, I will be chatting with Professor Liz Bentley, Chief Executive of the Royal Meteorological Society. Liz shares her fascinating career journey, from doing her own weather forecasts as a child, to studying mathematics before going on to join the Met Office. She's also spent time forecasting weather for the military, She's trained other forecasters and she's managed the BBC Weather Centre and she's worked in environmental research before joining the Royal Meteorological Society as Head of Communications and eventually going on to become Chief Executive. She shares her career advice as well as suggesting ways we can all do our bit to help achieve our net zero aspirations. Inesh Santos is on her holidays again at the moment so I'll be talking you through the new content in the written issue while she's away. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website. That's womanthology.co.uk. You can join our LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash and find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast. We have Professor Liz Bentley, and she is Chief Executive of the Royal Meteorological Society. How are you doing, Liz?
1: yeah hi fiona yeah really good actually good day sun shining so lifts the spirits certainly when the sun's out
0: we're always speaking to the right person and when it comes to the weather so i'm going to dive in if it's okay and start with the questions so i'm going to start by asking you please can you tell us about your educational background and career to date
1: Yeah, so I guess let's go back to the beginning. I was born in Huddersfield in Yorkshire, which is in the north of England, for those people who don't know Yorkshire particularly well. Huddersfield itself sits on top of the Pennines, which is a range of hills sitting up the spine of the UK. And so on top of the hills, I guess the weather was that bit more extreme and, you know, more exciting, I guess, for me. So I grew up in that kind of condition around me where, you know, the weather played a big part in my life growing up as a child. Again, those of you who've lived in the UK and are probably of a similar age to me will remember the summer of 76. It was very infamous, I think, here in the UK. Extreme heatwave, drought conditions. We had standpipes in Yorkshire, so no water in the house, had to go outside. I was just, you know, about seven or eight at the time and had to go and collect water from these taps outside for my mum to use in the house for food and for washing us. So the weather played a really important part in my life as I grew up. And so I went to school there. I was, I guess, more interested in science and mathematics. That's the thing that really interested me at school. Even walking to school, you know, we'd get really good snowy winters and deep snow. Um, You know, horizontal rain because the wind was quite strong. And so you'd get to school, the front half would be soaking wet. And the back half would be bone dry because of, you know, that driving rain as you walk to school. So again, that weather was always playing a part in my life, really. And so I got to probably about 13, 14, and my fascination in weather just grew and grew. And so I started to almost try and forecast the weather. I'd look at charts, weather charts, maybe in the newspaper and uh, try and forecast the weather and see if I could beat the weather forecaster that was on the TV, for example. I did at A-level, I did maths, physics, and geography, which I think you, if you speak to most people who go into meteorology, that tends to be the subjects that they've studied at A-level. And I guess maths was one of those topics that I just, you know, I really understood. It was my language, numbers, equations, you know, it was it's the thing that made me tick. So I carried on doing mathematics and went to the University of Newcastle in the northeast of England to study maths for three years up there. And again, the weather in Newcastle was was interesting. On that northeast coast of England, it tends to be quite cold, particularly at winter, but particularly dry as well. And I think it you know, resonated with the climate around me in Newcastle. That was something that really you know, interested me. I finished my undergraduate degree in Manchester and decided to continue studying mathematics and went to Manchester, at the other side of the Pennines from where I grew up. And Yeah, I did applied mathematics, a PhD in applied mathematics at Manchester. And I was really fortunate there because the old maths tower, the department was an 18-storey building. It's not there anymore. But my office used to be on the 17th floor. And the view I had of the Pennines over to the east, down across Cheshire, out towards the Wirral in the west. I mean, it was perfect for watching the weather. You know, weather systems coming in, showers developing snow that might fall on top of the Pennines. It was wonderful. I could spend time in the weather as well. So a career in meteorology was on the cards for me, I think, from my early teens. It built and grew, I think, even as I went into my 20s and through my degrees. And so straight after finishing my PhD in Manchester, I applied to work for the Met Office. And the UK Met Office is the main employer of meteorologists in the UK. There are lots of other organisations, but there were about 1,500 people work at the Met Office, so it was one of the key employers certainly at that time for meteorology. And I joined the Met Office initially as a research scientist, so I'd obviously done a PhD and I had the skills and ability to work in research and to study different phenomena of meteorology. But quite quickly, I wanted to get involved with how that science was being used and interpreted and delivered to customers. So I asked if I could train to become a weather forecaster. And I went off to the Met Office College, which was based in Reading at the time. uh, And I did a forecaster training course, which took about 14 months in total. So it's quite a long course where you learn about weather, observing the weather, understanding how, you know, the weather develops, the equations, the mathematical equations we use to model the atmosphere and the ocean the numerical models that we use to produce forecasts, and then how to interpret all of that and to deliver services to different customers. And so I trained to be a forecaster and I went to work in a number of different roles as a forecaster, but mainly within a military background, a defense background. So the first one was at R E F Bryce Norton, which is in Oxfordshire in the UK and I was working with the RAF, who were flying all around the world, so they were interested not only in the weather, in the local area to be able to take off and land, but also en route to different parts of the world. So my knowledge, I guess global knowledge of meteorology really increased at that time. And then I moved to work with the Army at a place in Essex on the southeast coast of the UK, and that the Army range there, they would basically testing ammunition and setting off various bombs and making lots of noise. So they were not just interested in the weather forecast, but they also wanted noise forecasts, acoustic forecasts. So quite interestingly, the atmosphere can determine what the where the noise is going to go, but also if, if the noise energy returns back down to the surface and provides, you know, extreme loud noise at the surface, which is loud enough to actually shatter windows. So they were really keen to avoid days when that noise would return back down and cause problems with, you know, people's conservatories starting to break because of the noise. Then I had my first child. So shift working was very much linked with weather forecasting. You had to get up early to do the forecast before people came into work. So I gave up shift working when I had my first child and I went into training weather forecasters and I moved to the Met Office College as an instructor and worked through a variety of roles there before I became chief instructor. And the chief instructor was responsible for overseeing all the training needs of the Met Office and delivering that training and making sure that the college had the right people and resources to do that. So it was quite an important role within the Met Office. And then after that, wanted a big change. So I moved to work at the BBC Weather Centre up at TV Centre in London at the time. TV Weather had, as you go up to the late 1990s, TV weather in the UK, you probably had a couple of channels where you had a weather forecast at lunchtime and tea time and, and late evening. But then we were expanding. So we had online, we had the web, the web that was delivering forecasts. You had changed really in the early 2000s. So we started to get more channels. So what was called BBC Eye at the time and now has become 24 News Channel. We were doing BBC World, so we were doing forecasts for around the world as well. Radio was growing. So the team at the BBC Weather Centre expanded significantly, grew about four times, about 400% in size, and they needed someone to manage that change, to manage that large team of people. So this new role came up and I jumped on it. It was really interesting. And I worked there for about four years and it was a fascinating role to be involved with both the people, the transition to a much wider reach of services through TV, radio and online the graphics that were used on TV. We went from the weather symbols that many people remember to 3D graphics that you could almost fly through and see really what was going on with the weather. So a really interesting place to work. And then again, after that, I wanted a complete change again. So I went to work in government within the Ministry of Defence, and I looked after their research acquisition. So looking for research to be done, in the environment that the military were working so that could be anything from the seabed through the oceans through the atmosphere out into space so again it was a really large scale of areas that we worked in and so the things that we'd look at were things like dust forecasting so again the military were working in places in the world where dust was a problem we'd look after the climate change For government, so any research that was done on climate change, there was about £10 million worth of research going into climate change at the time, and observations, so boys that float around in the oceans collecting data, you know, the temperature of the ocean, for example, and how that fed back into the network. So a really interesting job. And then about 2008, I saw a role at the Royal Meteorological Society and came and worked for the organisation I'm still at. I started there as head of comms and I've worked through a couple of roles until I became the chief executive here in 2013.
0: Wow, and what a fascinating career history. I could talk to you all day, Liz.
1: One of the things that's really interesting is when people think about a career in meteorology, they instantly think about a TV weather forecaster and assume that's probably it. And boy, it isn't. There's a whole wealth of things that you can go into. Think of anything that you do where the weather has an impact. Um, People will need a meteorologist to support them, to work alongside them, to help get through the the issues and the impacts that that weather has on them. So you can go into so many different areas. And I've been fortunate to be able to step into a number of very different roles through the last 25, 30 years. Uh
0: Uh-huh. And if we are trying to imagine you in your role day to day as CEO, and I'm sure there's many, many different types of days, but if broadly speaking, if we were trying to imagine Liz at work, what would we imagine you doing?
1: Yeah. So I guess let's start the Royal Meteorological Society is the learned and professional body for weather and climate. So it supports the science of meteorology, but it also supports the people that work in meteorology. And we don't do any research and we don't do any forecasting. We're here to support the people that do the science and do the forecasting. So, for example, we have eight international scientific journals that researchers can publish their science in. We run over 60 events a year to bring scientists together to share their science or to share that understanding and knowledge of weather and climate with wider audiences, the general public or people working in different sectors, say the energy sector, for example. We also run the professional accreditation scheme so people can work to become a chartered meteorologist, as you would have in other professions where you can become a chartered accountant. We have professional status that people can work towards to meet this, and we're the only body in the UK that oversees that. And we also are a small charity, so we do a lot of charitable activities supporting schools, teachers, the education profession, making sure weather and climate is on the curriculum and that teachers have the resources and the skills to bring that to life in the classroom. And we do a lot of science engagement. So again, just sharing that interest. Our mission, our aim is to advance the understanding of weather and climate. So it's all of those things help to support that mission. And so my role is to make sure that the strategic direction of the organisation takes us on that journey to move and deliver and to be able to reach and I guess influence that we have, whether that's engaging with the general public, working with our partners and businesses and organizations, or working within government to support policy changes, the bigger changes, particularly if you think about climate change. How are we going to deal with this complex problem of climate change, and how can the Royal Meteorological Society support that? So that's my role. I've got a small team of about 17 people in various different roles, helping to deliver those different activities and myself and the board of trustees will oversee the governance and the strategic direction to help us to get towards that.
0: And tell me about Met Matters Liz, what's that all about?
1: Yeah so a part of our aspiration is to reach out to as wide an audience as possible and so we introduce Met Matters as I guess our public engagement platform. So if you're interested in anything to do with weather and climate come to the Royal Met Society website rmets.org We have a tab at the top called Met Matters. There is absolute wealth of content and you can also register for a newsletter so you can keep updated, but content on weather and climate, current weather issues, people working in meteorology, for example, and join that conversation, join us in that interest around the world around us.
0: Brilliant. Well, what we'll do is we'll put in the show notes as well, all the details for that to make it really easy for people to get involved. So what would you say are the key challenges that we face as we work towards net zero targets?
1: Yeah, so there are a few things here. Knowledge is going to be really key here. So I guess there are two things. If you look at what the Climate Change Committee have put out, in order to meet the UK net zero targets, it's going to be very similar for other countries around the world, but in the UK, there's a number of things that we can rely on from technology changes. So we need people to have the the knowledge and the skills to be able to drive forward green technologies that will deliver net zero. But a significant percentage, about two thirds of our activities will require behavioral change. It'll require us to change uh, in what we do. And behavioral change also requires knowledge and a desire to want to make that change. And I guess optimism and facilitation, so I guess the technology around us to help us do that, but it, it's about, and that's where I think it's important from our role at the Royal Met Society is to support that knowledge, both in advancing technologies and giving people the skills, whether that's at school or in their careers, to make those green job changes, the technologies that are needed. But it's about giving people the knowledge so that they can make those behavioural changes as well. And you know, understanding that people will do that in different ways. So some people will be leaders and want to make those changes early. And some people will wait until you know people around them and it becomes more normal for them to do that and to help people on that journey. And I think for us, when we, we deliver a lot of climate change communication and try and help people to join that conversation and giving them the knowledge to do that, I think there's a real balance for us in that when you talk about climate change, it's a very complex problem. It can lead people to almost become fatalistic it's too big a problem, I can't solve this, or I become too anxious about it, you know, and again, that can shut people down, they don't want to take action. So for me, it's about empowering people. It's giving people solutions, actions, a call to action, so that we can empower them to come on this journey with us, to change those behaviours, whatever context they live and work in, to move in a direction to get us to net zero.
0: So why is diversity of thought so vital when we're working towards trying to solve these massive global challenges?
1: Yeah, really important here. If you think about that behavioural change, again, everybody has a different background of beliefs, values, culture. So one message, one set of action, one way of communicating with one group of people will be very different from other people around us. So we really have to understand that. It's a really complex problem. There are different ways of tackling the problem. As I say, you've got behavioral change, you've got technology solutions. There are different things we need to do, whether we're mitigating against climate change, so limiting that warming that we have, and then adapting and becoming more resilient to climate change. We're already seeing our climate change already, and it will continue to change. So we've got to become much more resilient. So that diversity of thought is critical, really, to deal with this big, complex issue, break it down into manageable chunks understand the different audiences and how people respond differently or or act differently when it comes to complex problems like climate change and to work with them as i say it's about empowering people it's about giving them solutions so that they can make a change and we do that very well and governments can make decisions and put regulations and policies in place that drive change but that necessarily doesn't work all the time. We also have to understand that if somebody is told to do something, they, they often have a reaction saying say, mm, I'm not I'm not comfortable with that. You have to take them on that journey with you. Let them decide at the point when it's right for them. So you give them the knowledge, you give them the skills, you facilitate the structure around them. So it, it removes barriers, it makes it easier for them to make those changes. So it's really about that empowerment, it's about giving them the call to action. And one of the things when we we do our climate change engagements is visit the actions and the impact those actions have. So, people are very familiar with recycling. And recycling is a great thing to do. And we've got the knowledge and the education about how to recycle. You've got the infrastructures around you to make it easy to recycle. But recycling doesn't have a huge impact when we think about that journey to net zero. The big things that have an impact are particularly how we travel. So for example, driving a car, petrol or diesel car, has a huge impact. So let me give you an example. An average person in the UK would have a carbon footprint of about eight and a half tons of carbon per year. And so we need to think about how we as an individual reduce that eight and a half tons of carbon per year. By driving a car, that's about 2.5 tons of carbon. So if you can stop driving a car, or move to drive an electric car, you can make a huge impact. Recycling is about 0.01 tonne of carbon. So it's important, it has, but it's a very small impact. And so people need to understand that we can do lots of things, but some things have a much bigger impact than others. And so it's about educating people and informing people. And I know aviation, so travelling by plane, is, is something that's discussed a lot. If we can just reduce the amount of aviation flights that we make, particularly long-haul flights, say to the US, for example, you know, if we reduce by one long-haul flight a year, that's 1.5 tonnes of, of carbon. So you can see how just one flight can make a huge difference to our overall carbon footprint. And it's just understanding and having that knowledge helps us to make those informed decisions. And so I think that's why that, where it comes with that diversity of thought, it's understanding the many different things, complex things that we can do, but having the right knowledge to be able to make those informed decisions.
0: So Liz, we touched on this a little bit already, but what is your advice to girls and potentially women as well, who could be career changers, for example, who are interested in working in the weather space? How do we get more women into STEM subjects such as maths as well? So I realise you're a mathematician.
1: Yeah, I think the overarching thing for me is do a career that you love. And almost it's a hobby that you get paid for, and the, being paid for is the bonus. So that's the first thing. And if you're fascinated by the environment, sustainability, the weather around us, then meteorology potentially could be the career for you. As I mentioned earlier, there are so many different areas that you can go into. If you just think about research, you can look at small scale features. You could study fog and clouds and tornadoes, for example, or you could look at big scale things like the monsoon that affects say, India or big hurricanes that develop. You could look at things on different timescales. So things that happen in the next few days, the next few months or the next few decades and thinking about climate change, that's really important. So that's just research. You could also look at how you get involved in sharing that information with customers. So the weather forecaster role and developing services, you could get involved in aviation forecasting, marine forecasting, flood forecasting, so many different areas where those services, that information, giving it to a customer to help them navigate through the problems that are around them. And as I say, going into government, I worked within government, fascinating area to work with, and you can help to steer policy changes and make those big, big differences, I guess, at a national level. And then you could work in the UK, or you could work around the world. So there's a real opportunity to move off into different areas. So it's about finding the thing that makes you tick, you you really enjoy and you really love, thinking about how, I guess, you can move about, jump on any opportunity, really, to just delve off into something else, to just explore a different area as well. So don't be fearful of that. Just thinking about females in particular, look for female role models. Certainly when I started out 30 years ago, there weren't many, but there were a few. Nowadays, there's many more. And there are many, particularly if you think of meteorology, In that early career stage, it's about 50-50. In fact, there's probably a few more women coming into meteorology than men at the moment. So maybe about 60-40 in that very early career, which is really interesting. But as you go through the generations, there's still, as you get to the people who've been more experienced and have been around a little bit longer, it's more skewed towards a male environment. So you might find there are occasions when you go to an event or a meeting where you may still be the only female in the room. And you need to just be mindful of that, I think. It's about how you manage with that and how you deal with that. Because certainly when I first started out, that would happen on many occasions, that you'd be the only person in that department or at that meeting or at that event. And I think there is that imposter syndrome that comes in. So you suddenly think, oh, should I be here? Have I got the skills, the knowledge to sit in this environment? And yes, absolutely, you have. You need to be proud and confident of your own abilities. There's also that feeling that you want to kind of fit in. So you try and be somebody else and not yourself. And again, be mindful of that. You'll move into that chameleon type position. And I think it's important that you recognize again that you're here, You the right to be here. It's important that you can contribute to that environment around you. And I guess you're part of that change process. So. It's a societal change and every time we get involved with these things we're having a part in making that change ourselves. So be proud of who you are and what you can achieve and look for those opportunities. Grab any opportunity that comes in front of you.
0: I can't believe we're almost at the end of the interview. So in terms of what's coming up next for you and what are you looking forward to and also how can the Womanthology community support the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, so the next big thing, the Royal Met Society is we're looking at our strategic plan for the next three years. So it's a really enjoyable process because it's taking stock of where we are, what works, what doesn't, but starting to do some blue sky thinking to think ahead about where we want to get to. So that's this year, there'll be a lot of strategic planning. There's also been an international focus over recent years. So we are the Royal Met Society in the UK, but we work with other met societies around the world. Last year, we launched an African Met Society. So there's been a real focus in Africa. And that reached a pinnacle as we went to COP27, which was in Egypt last year. So we go along to the COPs, which are called Conference of the Parties. We had COP26 in the UK a couple of years ago. And we'll be preparing for COP28, which takes place in UAE in December this year in Dubai. And our climate change communications is also ramping up. So that's something we deliver to different organisations to help people engaging that conversation around climate change so if I'm thinking about the community out there and how you can help us again it's thinking about how we can support ensuring that we continue that conversation around climate change whether that's in schools so you may get involved in becoming an ambassador a stem ambassador for example going into schools to bring weather and climate to life in the classroom to explain the importance of weather and climate because our aspiration as a Royal Met Society is that every child leaves school, weather and climate literate. It's really important, I think, as we move forward in the challenges that we already face and will face that school children leave with that knowledge. And if you're nervous about that, or you think, well, I haven't got the knowledge, then we're here to support you as well. So we do this climate change communication training. We deliver that to community leaders, people who are going out, having that conversation to give them the most up-to-date knowledge around climate science, the impacts of climate change, and to give you the confidence to talk about this important topic.
0: Well, Liz, it's absolutely fascinating speaking with you. So next time I'm watching the weather, I'm going to think of you. Is that all right? You're going to be my muse.
1: Yeah, but don't blame me for the weather. I'm only the messenger. (laughs)
0: Uh, so I'm going to say thank you so much Professor Liz Bentley Chief Executive of the Royal Meteorological Society for joining us today it's been an absolute pleasure will you stay in touch with us?
1: oh absolutely yeah and and again if anybody wants any advice and support go to the Royal Met Society website that would be my advice and uh, reach out happy to chat about this fascinating topic
0: as Inesh Santos, our associate editor, is off on her holidays at the moment, I'm bringing you the new stories in the written issue on her behalf. The stories include, Dr. Vivian Kizilchek, Consumer Research Manager in the Consumer Insights team at Energy Systems Catapult, who shares the work she's been doing alongside colleagues on a report highlighting the looming labour and skill shortage in the heating sector which is likely to worsen as older heating engineers retire and fewer young people take up roles in a skilled trade. She shares why increasing diversity in the heating sector to address the skills shortage is key to accelerating the transition to a net zero energy system and capturing opportunities of clean growth. Morella Di Lorenzo is a professor of biochemical engineering in the Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Bath. She's researching into using biological fuel cell technology to make electricity from unusual fuels or even soil. Biological fuel cells work by using bacteria that feed on nutrients in the soil and produce a tiny electrical current. And finally, Amy Veltevreden, Market Requirements Senior Manager at the National Grid ESO, discusses the Demand Flexibility Service – part of a range of tools designed to help manage the electricity system this winter and give access to additional flexibility when national demand is at its highest. This new innovative service allows consumers as well as some industrial and commercial users through suppliers or aggregators to be incentivized for voluntary and safely flexing the time when they use their electricity. Do check out our website womanthology.co.uk to read the full stories sadly that's all we have time for this episode thank you so much for listening and remember if you want to support what we do then share the link to the show on social media and also follow the show the feedback is really important so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app join us in the next episode and written issue where we'll celebrate international women's day 2023